one week season. What is going on, OWS fam? Welcome to the week nine edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host. I am your guest. I am JM to win. As always, throw this baby on 1.5x speed or 2x speed. Even if you're on YouTube, go ahead and do that. And let's get started with a week nine slate that is unlike any other. So uh, some news that came out this morning, record this on late, late Friday morning, early Friday afternoon on the West Coast. So mid to late afternoon on the East Coast. Um, news earlier today that Deshaun Watson will be starting. So I mentioned that off the top, not to highlight Deshaun Watson, but to say, looks like we're down to only seven backup quarterbacks starting out of the 20 quarterbacks on the slate. So talked about this in the angles email this week. Actually, let's talk real quickly about what this podcast is all about. Um, so every week the angles email goes out on Thursday to all OWS members, uh, OWS free members, paid members, old members, etc. And in that email, we take a macro view of what the site provides in terms of over-unders, who's on the main slate, who's missing from the main slate, what types of matchups we have, what sorts of games stand out from the others, and get a macro sense of what the slate provides. Then in the Angles podcast, we try to take that macro view and drill down to the next layers in terms of how we can be thinking about this slate from a strategy perspective, from a player's perspective, uh, from a roster construction perspective. So uh, sort of the final piece to this three-step puzzle of content is the player grid, which comes out for subscribers on Friday evening, right before Pizza Friday starts for myself and my kids on my end on Friday evening. So uh, around 7.30 on the East Coast, the player grid typically goes live, 7.30 to 8 on the East Coast, the player grid goes live. That is my player pool. And then obviously that gets updated on Sunday morning. So if you have not been returning to the player grid on Sunday mornings, make sure you do that because every week I go in and add any final thoughts, any final notes, and typically basically break down exactly what my player pool is and who my highest exposure players are in each position, uh, sort of down to the mid exposure players, down to the guys I'm taking shots on. So uh, yeah, so right now we're in this step where we're trying to get a sense of what the picture on the box for this week's puzzle looks like. And the angles email, if you don't get the angles email, you can also find it on the site in the scroll. But the angles email takes a look at, at this top-down view in terms of what the slate provides. And then this is the point where we want to go through those next layers and really see what makes this slate unique and how we might be approaching this slate. So this week's slate, how do we define this week's slate? Well, this week is a, is a week where everything is very much clumped up across the board. One of the things that we pointed out in the Angles email this week is that, so there's 20 teams on the main slate. Uh, 13 of those 20 teams rank in the bottom half of the NFL in offensive DVOA. So there are 32 teams in the league. Bottom half means 16. So 13 of the bottom 16 offensive DVOA teams are on this slate. Of the remaining seven teams, the, the seven teams that rank in the top half of the NFL in offensive DVOA, two of those teams are the Vikings and the Rams, both of whom are likely to be without the starting quarterback. There is There are reports today that Matthew Stafford will be a game time decision. So still a chance that uh, we have another, you know, backup quarterback staying on the sidelines and a starter on the field. But as of right now, we'll assume that Matthew Stafford is out. We know that Kirk Cousins is out. So Vikings, Rams, two teams rank in the top half of the NFL in offensive DVOA, but then missing their starting quarterbacks, which leaves us with only five teams that have a starting quarterback and rank in the top half of the NFL in offensive DVOA. All five of those teams are playing defenses that also rank in the top half of the NFL in defensive DVOA. So this is that sort of slate where nothing really separates. The good offenses are playing against good defenses. The bad offenses are playing against bad defenses. And so this sort of equalizes things across the board. But as we always talk about chalk forms, no matter what, on any given DFS slate, there's going to be chalk. And interestingly, the thinner the slate is, the more condensed chalk typically ends up being. So on a slate like this, where it is very thin, there are fewer games, then there are so many spots that kind of get crossed off the list 
automatically from a standpoint of who's under center for these teams or what the situation is for these teams. I mean, going on down the list, Vikings implied for 16.75, Falcons only 20.75. Even the Seahawks in their attractive game against the Ravens implied to score only 19, Cardinals 14.25, Rams 17.75, Packers 20.75, Bucks 18.5, Texans 21.5. Uh, Commanders 19, Patriots 22, Bears 16.25, Saints have a higher implied team total, we'll skip over them, Uh, Panthers 20.75, Giants 17.75, Raiders 19.75, Cowboys only implied for 22 points, so you go on down the list and it's like, well, there's really not much that stands out on this slate, And, and so like I said, a thin slate, and yet we know that chalk is going to form no matter what. So what does that tell us on a slate like this where the slate as a whole is thin and then the chalk plays end up being pretty thin? Well, it's not that those chalk plays, it's not that people are wrong about these plays being the best on paper plays. And a great example this week, and I, and I somewhat hesitate to isolate and highlight one individual example because I don't want it to come across like I'm talking down this player or the approach of playing this player. But one great example this week is Demario Douglas. Demario Douglas, who uh, has played a season high 41 snaps. Why is that? Well, he's five foot eight. He's a sixth round rookie. He's five foot eight. He is not playing on the outside. He's only going to be playing in the slot. And the Patriots don't typically run a ton of 11 personnel. They run enough for Demario Douglas to get up to two thirds of the snaps. But what happens when there's an injury to Kendrick Bourne and an injury to Devontae Parker on a team that's run plenty of 12 personnel throughout the season? Does this team suddenly say, okay, well, now we're just going to run a ton of 11 personnel, or if anything, aren't they going to up their 12 personnel rates? Aren't they going to up their rates of two tight ends on the field, which would then take Demario Douglas off the field? So not to say that the Patriots are necessarily going to increase their rates of 12 personnel, but that is to say that Demario Douglas's time on the field probably doesn't dramatically expand and it could even end up taking a step back. Now, likeliest outcome here is that Demario Douglas once again ends up in this 35 to 40 snap range, but that would probably put him in this same five to six to seven target, short area target range. So you have a guy like Demario Douglas who, if we're just going through on paper, we say, well, who stands out as the sharpest plays on the site? Well, here's Demario Douglas, 4K, and he's probably getting five to seven targets. And he's got an outside shot at eight targets, nine targets. And he's in this match against his bad Washington pass defense. And so, yeah, I'll put him on my list. He clearly stands out. But it's not like he's some dramatically awesome play. It's not like when we were getting Adam Thielen at 3,900 or Tank Dell at 3,400. And then once again, Tank Dell at 3,600. It's not... It's not even like we're getting Rashid Shahid at low ownership and 3,700, 3,800, right? We're talking about a guy who's going to primarily see short area looks on an offense that we've all pretty much universally been avoiding throughout this season because they're just not very good. So when you look at a spot like that, it's not that Demario Douglas is bad chalk in the context of this slate, but in the context of what wins you a tournament, you can zoom out and say, well, couldn't Demario Douglas very easily end up with 9, 10, 11, 12 points at 20% ownership, 25% ownership. And if that ends up being the case, aren't there some other directions that I could potentially go as a result? So Demario Douglas is just an example here, but it's a great example of what this slate provides in that we have this chalk in a lot of spots on the slate that yes, it is appropriate chalk in the context of this slate, but in the context of a different slate, it probably wouldn't be chalk. And therefore, what separates that play from a less popular play isn't that much. And very easily, that play could end up underwhelming or even hitting its expectations, and the less popular play could end up dramatically outperforming that play. So that's one of the things that really defines this slate. Uh, Another thing that really defines this slate is lots of available leverage. So we'll stick with the DeMario Douglas situation and also branch out to a couple others to highlight what I'm talking about here. But because of the way that this slate shapes up, where you have only 10 games, only 20 teams, and then so many teams, it's easy to cross them off of your list. What's ending up happening is is chalk, like I said, chalk forms no matter what. And so this chalk is starting to concentrate on pieces that are not only just a little bit better than the pieces priced around them, but in some instances, just a little bit better 
than the other plays on that team. And so again, a great example is Demario Douglas, where he's trending toward getting 20 to 25% ownership this week. And we're not talking about Brees Hall getting 25% ownership. We're talking about Demario Douglas on the Patriots getting 20 to 25% ownership. Again, am I going to have Demario Douglas this week? Almost certainly. Am I going to have as much Demario Douglas as the field has? Probably not, but I'll certainly still be taking my shots on Demario Douglas. But Demario Douglas is not the only pass catcher on this Patriots offense. And again, he's confined to the slot on a team that probably won't dramatically increase their 11 personnel rates. So what else has happened? Well, the, what has happened that everybody's looking to Demario Douglas this week is Kendrick Bourne on the perimeter is out. Devontae Parker on the perimeter is out. And now we're going to have Juju Smith-Schuster and Jalen Rager stepping in for those guys, right? And so people are looking to Demario Douglas, but completely ignoring Jalen Rager, completely ignoring Juju Smith-Schuster. And we could fast forward to the end of Sunday. And would it surprise us if Demario Douglas ends up seeing five catches for 35 yards and Juju Smith-Schuster ends up seeing six catches for 70 yards and a touchdown. So Juju Smith-Schuster at 3,100, Demario Douglas at 4K, Juju Smith-Schuster probably seeing sub 2% ownership, Demario Douglas probably seeing 10 to 12 times that ownership that Juju will see, maybe even 15 times the ownership that Juju will see, and very easily could end up being outperformed by Juju Smith-Schuster in a, a and in a large enough way that it actually matters for rosters this week. So not to say that Juju Smith-Schuster is a better on-paper play than Demario Douglas. He isn't. But just to say that there are a lot of unknowns in this situation. There are a lot of interesting components to play around with. And the player who is going to be way under-owned isn't a way lesser play than the high-owned guy on his offense. So if Juju Smith-Schuster ends up having that big game, not only are you getting, say you play, not only are you getting those Juju points, but you are taking away those points from the Demario Douglas rosters, which is what we talk about when we talk about leverage is not only what happens for your roster, but what does that also mean for other rosters? So uh, that is something that we're seeing in a lot of spots this week. And not all of them are as straightforward in terms of, well, this play is only a little bit worse than this other play and you gain a ton of leverage. Uh, but there are other places where you could very easily paint the picture of this play outperforming this play from a point per dollar sense, a salary spent sense uh, and hurting the other player. So another example of that, Chris Olave gaining a lot of ownership steam, Rashid Shahid seeing sub 2% projected ownership. Well, if Rashid Shahid is hitting for a big game, that is limiting the chances of Chris Alave hitting for a big game, taking those points away from those Chris Alave rosters. Uh, very easy to look at a slate like this and say, okay, you can't run on the Eagles, so the Cowboys are going to have to pass the ball. And the Cowboys have to assume that the Eagles will be able to put up points, so they're going to be aggressive in this spot. And CeeDee Lamb just had this monster game, so obviously CeeDee Lamb is going to hit once again. Very clearly, CeeDee Lamb could end up hitting for a big game, but also the Eagles know how important CeeDee Lamb is to this Cowboys offense. So what if what if the Eagles are able to find a way to slow down CeeDee Lamb and he ends up getting 16, 17, 19 DraftKings points? And what if some of those targets spill over to Brandon Cooks or Michael Gallup, who are both coming in with sub 3% projected ownership? Again, this is Friday, so a lot can change in projected ownership between now and Saturday night. But I wouldn't expect this to change dramatically. I would expect Brandon Cook. Uh, I would expect C.D. Lamb to be one of the most popular plays on this slate. I would expect Brandon Cooks and Michael Gallup to be not among the least popular plays on the slate, but certainly significantly less popular than C.D. Lamb in this spot. And once again, if they are getting those points, they are taking away those points from C.D. Lamb. Uh, so there are just a lot of opportunities on this slate for leverage for strategy. Uh, and then there's also, we talked about Rashid Shahid. So Rashid Shahid has a 20 pointer this year. He has an 18 pointer this year. He has a 27 pointer just last week. And he's coming in with sub 2% projected ownership on Friday. And Chris Alave is pushing up close to 20%. Well, a large part of that is because Rashid Shahid is priced at 4,500. And you look through his targets and we tend to be pretty target sensitive. We tend to be pretty volume sensitive because if a player has higher volume, then their floor is that much higher. So yes, ceiling wins this tournament. So just paying attention to floor is a trap, but 
floor does matter because the ceiling is often a is getting springboarded off of the floor. So in other words, if a player typically has a floor of 12 to 15 points and then they add a two touchdown game or if they add a couple big plays, well, then all of a sudden they're springing up from that 12 to 15 point range into a much higher score. So if Rashid Shahid's typical floor is like three to four to six points, well, then he needs a lot more to go right in order to have these big games. At the same time, because of his downfield role, those things he needs to go right can happen all at once. So if if Rashid Shahid were coming off of last week's 27-pointer and he were 3,700 in this matchup against the Bears, he would probably be pretty popular this week. But because he's 4,500, he is going dramatically under-owned against his ceiling outcome. So that's another thing that's really standing out to me this week is the pricing psychology and the way that it's playing with people this week. So uh, I tend to be somewhat, not somewhat price sensitive. I tend to be relatively more price sensitive than the average sharp DFS player. Price sensitivity is something that uh, is important to me in the way that I play. And then I have to sort of work my mind to make sure that I'm being less price sensitive uh, than I want to be in order to find these paths to upside. But this is a week in which there's a lot of value in being less price sensitive. Uh, so there's a few other spots. Uh, one example is TJ Hawkinson and Jordan Addison. So uh, we know Kirk Cousins is out. It's going to be Jaron Hall starting. Josh Dobbs is going to be active as the number two. It's not going to surprise me given jo what Josh Dobbs has shown us in the past of his ability to quickly pick up a playbook. It's not going to surprise me if Josh Dobbs actually ends up playing a large chunk of this game. We'll see how that plays out. But uh, we will go into this game expecting Jaron Hall to be playing all four quarters. And because of that, DraftKings proactively dropped the price on TJ Hawkinson. TJ Hawkinson priced down at 5,200. They did not drop the price on Jordan Addison. So what we're seeing is high expected ownership on TJ Hawkinson, low expected ownership on Jordan Addison. But if DraftKings had, had dropped Addison's price down to 5,300, 5,200, 4,900. Wouldn't his ownership be quite a bit higher than it will be when he's priced at 6K? Uh, Rashid Shahid, another example, as I said, 4,500. If he were 3,700, 3,800, wouldn't his ownership be quite a bit higher than it's going to be? Mac Jones, another example, coming in as one of the highest projected owned quarterbacks at 4,900. But if he were 5,600, 5,700, would people be looking to Mac Jones this week or would he, he be a guy where nobody's really wanting to touch that play? So there's a lot of that on this slate. Tamario Douglas, another one, if he were 4,800, would people be as excited to play him? Maybe they would because they're not um, fully reading how like what the role change might be for him. But um, there's just a lot of this on this slate where the players being priced a little bit higher than people want them to be. DK Metcalf, another example, he's 6,900 coming in with low protected ownership, but if he were 6,100, what are the chances that everyone would, would say, man, DK Metcalf's only 6,100. He can hit for these monster games. So one of the things that I'm wanting to do this week is be a little less price sensitive than normal and look for these opportunities to say, uh, okay, yeah, this guy, I'll pay a little bit more than I really want to pay for him. But that also buys me, this extra salary I'm spending buys me much lower ownership then I would get if this guy were just a little bit less expensive. Similarly, guys who are really standing out because of their price, I'm going to also put them in the context of, okay, what is their raw ceiling though? What are their, what is their expected outcome? And can they really help me win a tournament in terms of raw production on this slate? So one of the reasons why all of these things matter a little bit more than normal, the leverage aspects, the pricing psychology aspects is because so much on this slate is really clumped up together. So as we said at the top, we've got the good offenses are playing good defenses. The bad offenses are playing lesser defenses. Uh, we've got all these backup quarterbacks. Uh, we have all these low implied team totals. And so what happens on a slate like this is the, the top tier plays, the second tier plays, the third tier plays, they're not, there's not all that much that separates one from the next from the next. And so because of that, rather than sitting here and saying, okay, I'm going to try to isolate who the best plays are on this slate and play those guys, I want to say, let me let other people do that. And let me look for the strategy angles, whether it's paying a little bit more in salary to buy that lower ownership or finding those leverage opportunities uh, or finding places where people might be misreading a situation and the ownership is quite a bit higher. The, the, the chalk isn't 
chalk that should be as chalky as it is, or I should say that the ownership numbers don't necessarily speak to the ceiling that a player has so much as just, well, in the context of this slate, this guy makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I'm going to be looking for spots like that this week. Uh, that also means that this is the sort of week it becomes, uh, and I say all the time that DFS is art, not science. Uh, but there is still a scientific component. There is still that logical, mathematical component of who are the sharpest plays on the slate. And that's always, for me, the starting point is who are the sharpest plays on the slate. And then the creativity comes in after that. And the creativity is a big part of it for me in terms of how do I put unique rosters together? How do I find angles that other people aren't finding? How do I ask questions uh, and pursue games and situations that other people might not be pursuing? But on this particular week, it's going to be even less scientific for me than normal. And because of that, more of my approach, more of my player pool than normal will come together on Saturday night because as I get in there and build, it's going to be my opportunity to say, okay, this is how the field is seeing things and these are the places where I can exploit what the field is seeing, how the field is attacking, uh, what where the field is placing high confidence where they shouldn't necessarily be placing high confidence. So uh, this is a more strategy-centric week than a typical NFL DFS week in my mind. Uh, and that's kind of one of the, it's one of the core components of this slate. Um, that's really the top-down view of this slate. So typically we spend a lot more time on this segment than normal. And it might just mean that we're going to have a, a shorter angles pod than normal this week. Because again, I don't want to I don't want to waste your time. I'm trying to look through, I'm trying to look at these games and see if there's anything else that I'm missing here that I want to make sure that I am covering. Uh, okay, so another thing that we want to be thinking about this week is where can we, well, I said it in the Angles email this week. Who are, what are the games that could separate from the pack? Who are the, what are the teams that could separate from the pack? And who are the players who could separate from the pack. So in terms of the games that could separate from the pack, clearly the most obvious opportunities for games to separate from the pack are the Ravens, Seahawks, and the Cowboys and Eagles. So really quickly, let's take these other games, uh, Falcons and Vikings. You've got uh, Heineke against Jaron Hall. So the chances of this being, let's say separating from the pack, being both teams scoring four or more touchdowns, both teams sco scoring 28 or more points pretty low probability of Vikings and Falcons combining for 28 plus points. Uh, quick note here before I go forward. Uh, one of the things I talked about this week in the Winter Circle podcast that I think is really valuable to keep in mind is don't spend too much time or put too much investment into negative comments that people have about a game, about a player, about a situation. I have been tripped up by this at least three different times this year, and we've all had this happen to us in our, in our DFS career, but at least three different times this year where I've been on a player because of positive data points that I'm seeing about that player and reasons why they could end up having a big game. And then I'm listening to something else or reading something else from somebody who I respect, somebody whose research and NFL knowledge I respect, and they come with a negative data point about that particular player. And that sticks in my head and I end up saying, oh yeah, no, I'm not going to play that guy. And that guy has ended up having a big game. That's happened to me three different times this year where a negative comment, negative data point somebody has brought up has stuck in my head and it has overridden the positive data points that I was looking at. And one of the things that I was thinking about this last week was we are searching for ceiling when we're putting players onto our rosters. So the positive, what, what the downside is on a player or what could lead to this player failing, yes, we should be accounting for that in our thoughts, but that shouldn't be the reason why we don't play a player. So if, if I'm on a player because here's something positive about them, here's something positive about them, here's three or four things that make me really like this player this week and, and see these paths to ceiling, and then I hear this negative data point where this person's not on them because they've latched onto this negative data point, they say it in a convincing way, and it's true, and it makes sense, and then it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to play this guy. Well, all that negative data point is is a reason why that player could fail. But the positive data points that I've already been looking at that made me like this player are reasons why this player could succeed and could succeed at a high enough level that they are worth playing in tournaments. So uh, be cautious about holding too tightly onto negative data points that you hear. 
pull them into your mind as information that should be considered. But if you are looking at positive data points, positive reasons to like a spot, a player, a team, an offense, whatever it is, uh, hold on to those. So uh, I say that before I move forward because I'm going to go through these games and kind of hit on why I don't see most or any of them being uh, po potential possibilities for you know both teams scoring four or more touchdowns. But I don't want that to talk you off these games if you're already on one of these games. So uh, that's a broader point in terms of not letting negative data points swing your mind uh, away from players that you're on because of positive data points that you've been looking at or thinking about, uh, but then also more specifically to these games that I'm about to go through. I don't want to talk you off of games that you might already be on. Uh, Cardinals at Browns, uh, sort of weird situation with the Cardinals. Seems like Clayton Toon is starting, and then now it's like maybe it's Jeff Driscoll and uh, Jonathan Gannon is trying to make it sound like it might still be Kyler Murray. Vegas is not buying that Cardinals implied to score 14 point. Two five points against the Browns. Uh, Browns are now getting Deshaun Watson back. So could the Browns score four touchdowns? Again, Deshaun Watson hasn't been Deshaun Watson of old in this Browns offense yet. Uh, but what I like is that the last time Deshaun Watson came back, he was pretty popular in a good matchup against Indianapolis. Ended up playing 12 snaps. If I, if I remember correctly, he went one for five with an interception, took one or two sacks and then left the game. So uh, that might scare people off of playing in this week. Could the Browns score four touchdowns? Could they be a team that separates from other teams? Yes. Could this be a game environment where both teams are separating, where the game environment is separating? Probably not. Rams and Packers. Rams, again, uh, they're going to decide on Sunday whether or not Matthew Stafford can play. Maybe he can play. But uh, as of right now, the expectation is that it's Brett Rippon against Jordan Love, this uh, Packers offense that's averaging under four points per game in the first half of games. Again, that could turn around at some point, but uh, is this a game that is likely to separate too slow, you know, well, a slower paced Packers team, a Rams team that will probably slow down the pace in this one. Uh, one of the pathways to this, this one, both teams scoring four or more touchdowns, those pathways are pretty thin, pretty unlikely to happen. Buccaneers at Texans. This is an interesting one. Texans have not allowed shootouts. Bucks have not allowed shootouts, but both teams are capable of scoring points. So is that one that could end up being the game that separates? It has an outside, outside shot at being that type of game. Commanders at Patriots. Patriots don't typically score a lot of points, but they can sometimes play to the level of their competition. So if Washington is able to find a way against this Patriots defense, then there is a chance that this game ends up being a higher scoring game. Bears at Saints, Bajant uh, at, at New Orleans in the Dome. Uh, can this be a game where both teams are scoring four or more touchdowns? That's highly unlikely. Can the Saints be one of those teams that scores four or more touchdowns? They certainly have the opportunity to do that this week. Colts at Panthers. This is actually an interesting one because uh, Bryce Young is going to continue to look better as this season moves along. The Colts play fast. The Colts are aggressive and the Colts should be capable of scoring points against the Panthers. So there's that outside shot that the Panthers actually end up being part of this back and forth and it ends up becoming a more interesting game than expected. And even if it doesn't hit both teams scoring four or more touchdowns, the price tags are such that even like a 28 to 24 game would end up making the Panthers somewhat interesting in this spot. Uh, Giants at Raiders, the uh, the fighting Danny Dimes and friends against Aiden O'Connell and the Raiders. Both teams implied to score under 20. Raiders are the only team in the NFL that hasn't scored, I believe it's 21 points this year. Uh, so yeah, uh, opportunities for this game to both teams score four or more touchdowns pretty low uh, and then Cowboys at Eagles. So we talked again, we talked in the angles email about we need to be looking this week for the games that could separate the teams that could separate and the players that could separate. And the reason for that is everything's likely to be pretty bunched up this week. So if you can find if, if nine games all end up in the range that's implied by the over unders and the implied team totals, and then one game ends up shooting way above that and you're building around that game, you're going to be so far ahead of the field on a week like this because most likely if one game shoots out, it's the only one that shoots out and the other games end up not shooting out. Uh, at most, we could see two games shooting out this week. It's highly unlikely that we see more than that. So if you find that right game, you're way ahead of the field. 
Similarly, right now, no teams are implied to score over 25 points, let alone four touchdowns. So if you get that one one team that scores four touchdowns or even five touchdowns, you are so far ahead of the field. And then again, the chalk at pretty much all the positions is guys who are probably still going to underperform their price-based expectations. So if you can find that player who ends up scoring 32, 35, 38 points on this week, well, they could be the only player who's going up to that type of score. And if that ends up being a low-owned player who does that, all the better because now you're so far ahead of the field. So uh, that sort of game-by-game breakdown gives you a sense of what this slate shapes up like, uh, which games and teams kind of have any sort of shot at being the types of games and or teams that we would be looking for uh, in terms of separation from the field. In terms of individual players who have that opportunity to be separators from the field, we will primarily save that for the player grid uh, where I'll go through my player pool and kind of hit on what I'm seeing. And again, I would, uh, especially on this particular week, not to say that like a ton will change between now and Sunday morning, but on this particular week, I would definitely encourage you to, uh, if you use my thoughts as part of your process and sort of balance some of your own thoughts off of mine as part of the way that you play, I would definitely recommend coming back on Sunday morning. Usually that's around at the latest 8 a.m. on the East Coast that I have my updates in there. Uh, It really just depends on what my night of building looks like. So sometimes I have that done a little bit earlier than that. Sometimes I have it done slightly later than that, but somewhere around 8 a.m. at the latest. Uh, If you wanna know when it's posted, you can also just have alerts on for the content channel in the OWS Discord. Uh, Every time new content comes out, you will get an alert there, including when I provide my update to the player grid. Um, So yeah, we will save the player discussion for the player grid. But again, what I'm looking for this week is players who have that potential to separate from the clumped up masses. Players who have that potential to be that 30 plus point scorer on a week where we may not see many 30 plus point scores. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, With that, we are actually going to go ahead and a little bit earlier than normal, roll into the bottom-up build. So typically we're about 45 minutes into this podcast when we start the bottom-up build. We're about 33 minutes in today. Uh, But yeah, it's just sort of a weird week. 10 games on the slate. Uh, All of these spots that don't really, that that aren't really that attractive. Uh, And then sort of this clumped up setup to where uh, not as much to cover on this particular week. Uh, Just keep that in mind. Be thinking about the strategy angles. Be thinking about less about how do I identify the best plays because the best plays on the slate are pretty clear and obvious. And the best plays aren't in a lot of spots, aren't that much better than the lesser plays. So think more about strategy this week than you even typically do. Uh, That's going to be where we find our edge on this week nine slate. Uh, Bottom up build. So if you're new here, what is the bottom up build? Well, a lot of people make the mistake in DFS of starting their rosters from the top down. They find the expensive players that they want to play. And then they have I've got 3,300 in salary left at the tight end position. So let me find the tight end down here that I can justify playing. Let me come up with the story of why this tight end might be a good play. Uh, Tends to lead to bad plays at the low end. What we like to do instead is start from the bottom up, get a sense of the cheaper plays that we actually really like. And that gives us a better sense of how we can build our salary or build our rosters as a whole. So uh, original Bottom-up build, what I would do was start from the bottom up. And once I found, once there was a player, you know, started the cheapest quarterback. And then once I found a player that was like, oh, I actually really like this guy. Um, from a raw points perspective, he would go on the bottom-up build. Same thing at running back, same thing at wide receiver. And then we would just see how much salary was left over at the end of that in order to get a sense of what value was available on the slate, how tight salary was on that particular week. That evolved into us doing a 44K salary cap. Uh, and that coincided with us starting a bottom-up build contest in which the rules are simple. You build with a 44K salary cap. So you can find the link in my player grid. You can also find the link in the bottom-up build channel in the OWS Discord. Uh, really cool prizes for bottom-up build winners, free courses on OWS special Discord color so that everybody knows you're a bottom-up build winner. Uh, and then the last piece of the puzzle was but back before we launched Inner Circle, Uh, we would use the bottom-up build as really our only opportunity in the week 
to talk through roster construction strategy and theory uh, in terms of, hey, if everyone were playing with a 44K salary cap, which we have a contest where everyone is, how would we think through the strategy and build for this slate. Now, uh, I have we have the DFS Labs on YouTube now where we build two rosters a week on there. I uh, build a roster on my show with Pete. And then we also have Inner Circle now where there's just lots of training that we do every single week. Uh, so the strategy portion of the bottom-up build has been de-emphasized uh, over the last couple of years, but uh, still a cool opportunity for us to look at some of the the values, but then also some of the ways that I would put that value onto a roster in order to maximize ceiling. And we see it with the bottom-up build contest. Rosters that end up winning with a 44K salary cap end up winning that contest with 190 points, 195 points, 200 plus points. So it's really fun to see how people are able to pack as much upside as possible onto their bottom-up build rosters. A really sharp exercise in terms of getting your main slate rosters, your 50K salary cap rosters as good as they can be by building those 44K rosters and seeing how much how much upside you can fit onto those. Also, I like to use my bottom-up build to isolate players or strategy approaches that I think are particularly interesting. So we will start with players. And we will start with my guy, Jonathan Taylor, who uh, very high on Jonathan Taylor this week. The, I'm always going to be interested in running backs going against this Panthers defense. Not only is the Panthers run defense the worst in the NFL, but opponents see that and attack it as such. So the Panthers face the highest opponent rush play rate in the NFL, the lowest opponent pass play rate in the NFL. When teams play the Panthers, they run the ball about 50% of the time. On top of that, the Colts are already one of the lower pass rate over expectation teams in the NFL. The Colts prefer to bias their offensive attack toward the ground. Uh, so it sets up very well for the Colts to have a good game on the ground. We know that they want to run the ball. We know that teams like to run the ball against the Panthers. We know that teams can run the ball against the Panthers. Uh, last week, Jonathan Taylor played 60% of the snaps. Zach Moss played 40% of the snaps. Really weird week where Jonathan Taylor had uh, 95 yards at halftime or at least 90 yards at halftime. I had a little bit of Jonathan Taylor exposure last week and was like, oh, okay, so he's getting the 100-yard bonus and then looked back toward the end of the game and it was like, wait, he's still sitting here at 95 yards. So uh, that's going, like Jonathan Taylor, it looks like he's going to be popular this week, but that's going to take some of the ownership away from him If than if he'd had, you know, 22 touches last week and had a big game, grabbed the 100-yard bonus. Um, so there was also, speaking of people focusing on the negative things instead of just the positives, um, Shane Steichen had some comment this week about the hot hand and all that. But also, Shane Steichen answered a lot of questions on Monday about Jonathan Taylor's usage. And he said multiple times, like, do we wish that we'd gotten him more involved in the second half? Yeah, uh, it was just the way that the game ended up going. And uh, what he talked about was first drive of the second half, Jonathan Taylor was on the field, but the Colts had multiple penalties and sacks. And so they kept ending up with these long down and distance situations where it wouldn't have made sense for them to run the ball. So that, that drive goes through and Jonathan Taylor doesn't get any touches, not by design. It was just the way that that drive ended up working out. I believe it was then the next drive that Zach Moss was on the field. Uh, and then the next drive, the Colts ended up throwing an interception, I believe is what it was. And so uh, it was just like a, a random set of circumstances that wasn't intentional or designed to where Jonathan Taylor's touches just weren't there in the third quarter. Uh, Colts only had three possessions in the third quarter, and then we roll into the fourth quarter, and they're trailing in this game against this good Saints defense with a really good run defense. And so the game just ended up getting away from Jonathan Taylor usage. Do we really expect that to happen this week against a Panthers team that the Colts should be able to, at worst, be within one score of and probably be in control of the game for most of this game, uh, a team that is very easy to run against as opposed to the Saints defense that is not easy to run against. Uh, so everything sets up really nicely this week for Jonathan Taylor to see. Uh, I'm expecting 18 to 22 touches, you could call it 17 to 22 touches, uh, outside shot that he sees a little bit more than that. But uh, I like Jonathan Taylor a lot this week. He's underpriced relative to his ceiling. And on a week in which there might not be that many players 
who go for 30 plus points, any player who has that type of upside uh, with very clear paths to getting there is a guy I want to be on. So uh, Jonathan Taylor is going to be our starting point for this roster. Uh, next thing that we want to be thinking about is, is there a game that could separate from the pack? So uh, I wanted to build this bottom-up build around that idea of picking one of these games that could separate from the pack. And I went ahead and picked this Cowboys and Eagles game. So one of the things that we like about this game is when you are playing a team that you know can score a lot of points, there are two ways to approach that. One way is to say, okay, well, when we have the ball, we're going to slow things down and we're going to try to uh, keep the oppo opposing defense on the field so that the opposing offense is off the field and uh, sort of just lower the scoring ceiling for this game as a whole. As long as we can limit the number of possessions in this game, we can limit the number of opportunities for the opponent to pull away. Uh, you know, we increase the chances of a random mistake on one of their drives, giving us some extra points and uh, we keep this game much closer. The other way to approach a game where you know that the opponent is going to score points is to say, hey, we're gonna need to score points in order to win this game. So let's have an aggressive game plan. Let's attack in this game. Let's try to score as many points as we can. Uh, Nick Sirianni already outright said two weeks ago that the Eagles will always be a team that falls into that ladder, ladder category uh, after they had played the Dolphins. He was asked about the play clock running a little bit longer on some of the early Eagles drives, asked if that was intentional for the Eagles to try to keep the Dolphins offense off the field. And Nick Sirianni said that he hadn't even noticed that that had happened uh, and that that was entirely coincidental. Uh, he said, look, we will never be a team that is just trying to keep the opposing offense off the field. We will always be aggressive. We will always be a team that is trying to score as many points as we can as quickly as we can when we have the ball. So we already know that the Eagles are going to be approaching this game in that manner. And we've seen the Cowboys a couple times this year, including last week against a good Rams offense, be a lot more aggressive with the ball on, in their hands against good offenses than they are against lesser offenses. So uh, very much expect both teams to be aggressive here. So that's one piece of the puzzle already falling into place for us. Now, in terms of does it work out? That we won't know until games end on Sunday, but we do know that both teams will try to be aggressive. So already having that step taken in our favor is a big thing. And so uh, this is a game that I like attacking this week. And I am going to, because it's going to be a popular game, I want to look for ways to attack it uniquely. So obviously this is a bottom-up build. We're working with a 44K salary cap. But I also think this approach, this thought process is interesting on 50K salary cap rosters, real rosters. Uh, and that is saying everybody else, again, we've talked this week about looking for leverage and finding these opportunities for the strategy to play in our favor. So yes, we want to be looking for the games that can separate the teams that can separate the players that can separate, but then also within those teams that can separate or these games that can separate, there are these leverage opportunities. So uh, in this particular spot, what I'm going to do is instead of Dak and CeeDee Lamb, I'm going to go Dak and Michael Gallup and Brandon Cooks. Now, uh, I won't spend much time talking about Gallup here, but I want to talk about Cooks real quickly in that a player like Cooks, it's very easy to look through his game logs and say, yeah, but he doesn't see more than four targets in a game. And yet, fast forward four or five weeks, and maybe his game logs look very different. Maybe he has that game with seven targets, that other game with nine targets. Uh, again, we look through Michael Gallup's game logs, and we've got uh, two targets, two targets, then seven, six, five, 10, and then three targets. So these things can go in cycles to where when we look at Brandon Cooks and what has it been so far, it has been uh, four targets, seven, four, 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 zero, four. Uh, sorry, the zero was a bye week. Um, but yeah, so uh, four, seven, four, 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 right? So it's easy to look at that and say, well, he only sees four targets every single game, but would it surprise us if he came out and saw seven targets? Would it surprise us if he came out and saw eight or nine targets? Uh, would it surprise us if in week 14, we're looking through his game logs and we see, sure, all these four target games, but then also a random spike to like a seven target game and a 10 target game, uh, and then back down to three targets, four targets based on the matchups or based on the game environments or uh, whatever ends up happening in that individual game. So uh, there are opportunities here where CD, everybody's going to look at this game as a game to attack. 
CeeDee Lamb is going to be probably over 20% owned. These other Cowboys wide receivers will be probably under 4% owned, maybe even under 3% owned, and very easily could end up being the guys who produce. If the Eagles are able to isolate CeeDee Lamb, take him out of this game. So uh, I like the idea of having some Dak and Cooks rosters. I like the idea of having some Dak and Gallup rosters, uh, and really like the fact that when you look through the game logs, it just looks like, well, I can't play this guy, and that's going to lead to this much lower ownership on these guys. Similarly, instead of bringing it back with A.J. Brown, I am going to bring it back with Dallas Goddard and DeAndre Swift. Uh, what's cool about this is that at the tight end position, like you probably don't need Goddard to put up a 28-point game. Uh, not a great matchup for Mark Andrews, and he's 6,800. Uh, Mark Andrews, who typically sees around six targets most games. So it's not like, uh, it's not like he's seeing 13, 14 targets and smashing on high number of looks, right? Last week was five targets. The week before was six. The week before was six. He had this 10-target game. Then the week before was five. The week before was five. So Mark Andrews needs the multiple touchdown game in order to be this separator type of score in most scenarios. Uh, and the Seahawks are good against tight ends on top of that. TJ Hawkinson playing with Jaron Hall. So would it surprise us if he gets up to 20 points? No, not really, but also... Would it surprise us if he has 9, 10, 11 points? No, not really. And then below that, it's like just pretty much total dart throws at tight end where you've got, you know, this guy might get six points. This guy might get nine points. This guy might score the touchdown, which puts him up to 12 points. And so that's really the shape of the tight end position. So Dallas Goddard, if he ends up putting up 16 points, 17 points, can actually end up being one of the most valuable pieces on this slate. Uh, and that also means that he can be comfortably played with another piece from this Philadelphia offense to where you're saying, you don't, you don't need DeAndre Swift to score 30 points and Dallas Goddard to score 27 points. Uh, you just need Goddard to put up a better score than the other tight ends. And you, you're ahead of the field there. Uh, DeAndre Swift, we've harped on this throughout the season, but one of the more underpriced players from a standpoint of expected fantasy points and from a standpoint of pre-touchdown PPR points per game. So uh, his price has gone up, but again, I want to be paying attention to these places where it's a little bit uncomfortable to pay a particular price tag on a player because in terms of what can separate us on a slate like this, it all comes down to those raw points. I don't, I want to be less price sensitive than I typically am. So uh, DeAndre Swift plus Dallas Goddard is a fun way to bring back this Dak plus Gallup plus Cooks. So that gives us a chance to talk through some of the ways that we can build around these games, some of the thoughts that I am going to be entering this weekend with. Uh, gives us a starting point of Dak at quarterback, Swift and Jonathan Taylor at running back, Gallup, Cooks at wide receiver, and Dallas Goddard at tight end. Uh, this now brings us over to some salary savers, throwing in the Giants defense. It's played really well lately. Three of their last four games have been double-digit uh, DraftKings games. Uh, they traded away Leonard Williams, but still have Dexter Lawrence, Dexter Lawrence, who is blowing away all other nose tackles in the NFL. Not the, not the nose tackle is a prominent position in the NFL anymore, but uh, just getting enormous amounts of pressure up the middle, which is the hardest place for a quarterback to deal with pressure is directly up the middle because uh, that there is no pocket anymore if the center is getting blown up into the quarterback. And that's what Dexter Lawrence has been able to do this year. So he's still there. Uh, just not a great spot for Aiden O'Connell, not to say that he can't have a good game, not to say that Devontae Adams can't have a good game, not to say that I won't have some interest on that side of the ball, but uh, Giants defense, very interesting at only 2,300. Uh, and then Noah Brown. So we talked about Noah Brown last week. And last week, what we said throughout the whole week, I think we said it in the Angles podcast as well, was that CJ Stroud really lined, like he set up last week, to where it was probable that he was throwing 30 or fewer times uh, against the Panthers because everybody runs against the Panthers. Uh, and in that game, what I said was it was likely that all of Noah Brown and Tank Dell and Nico Collins would end up seeing four to six targets. Well, what ended up happening, if I remember correctly, was Nico saw six targets, Noah Brown saw five targets, Tank Dell saw four targets. Nico Collins is in a different category. He's capable of putting up these huge gains and scoring from anywhere on the field. He has a 30-pointer, a 38-pointer. He costs only 5,800. Uh, Tank Dell and Noah Brown are much more in the same bucket. And yet the ownership is going to flow toward Nico Collins and Tank Dell. 
You guys know I love Tank Dell as a player. We were heavy, heavy, heavy on him both of those weeks when he hit under 4K. But Noah Brown in only 3,100 probably sees the same number of targets as Tank Dell or in that same range of targets that both Tank and Nico Collins end up seeing only 3,100. And whereas last week the Bucks were playing or the, the uh, Texans were playing this Panthers team that forces everybody to the ground. This week they're playing a Bucks team that forces everybody to the air. So uh, we've talked a lot this year about how much teams pass against Philadelphia, how if you just took a created a composite quarterback out of everybody who's played the Eagles this year, they would have the highest pass play rate of any quarterback in the NFL. And even with that, Bucks, Buccaneers opponents actually have a higher pass rate over expectation than even Philadelphia opponents. So Buccaneers very much force opponents to the air. And so this is a week where we should see CJ Stroud throwing the ball. Uh, his over under for pass attempts is 31 and a half. I have that in some underdog parlays with the over there because I very much expect this to be a week where CJ Stroud is throwing the ball 34, 36, 37 times, somewhere in that range. Uh, makes this a really nice opportunity for Noah Brown to potentially see six or seven targets at only 3,100. Uh, and that leaves us with enough salary left to get to Chris Olave. Chris Olave going to be popular this week, probably unduly popular. I wouldn't say that he's my favorite player of the bunch, but he's certainly in the mix among players uh, priced in this sort of uh, low 6K price range. Played around with Amari Cooper being uh, the wide receiver in the spot. Instead of Chris Olave, this was the last piece on this roster. So there's a lot of different directions that I could have gone with this last piece on this roster. But Chris Olave, uh, lower floor, or, or, or I should say, a lower shot at hitting his ceiling than the ownership will imply, but still very much has pathways to a ceiling game. And that ceiling game could be 30 plus points. So uh, Chris Olave, a guy I've been overweight on almost every week this season to no avail. Um, it would be just like DFS for the week when everybody else finally gets on him to be the game when he has his big breakout game. So uh, I would expect that I'll end up being close to even weight the field with Chris Olave. Uh, this is a spot where I'm a little bit less high on him than the field is, a little bit less high on him than I've been other weeks. So again, I recognize that that could very well just mean this is the week Chris Olave ends up hitting. So uh, Chris Olave ends up on this roster, gives us a chance to talk about him a little bit. And that gives us the bottom-up build of Dak Prescott, DeAndre Swift, Jonathan Taylor, Noah Brown, Michael Gallup, Brandon Cooks, Dallas Goddard, Chris Olave, and the Giants defense. Exactly 44K in salary spent, exactly 6K in salary left over. Uh, with that, I'm going to get out of here and get you out of here, get you back to focusing on prep and building rosters for this slate. I want to encourage you to worry less about trying to math your way to a win this week and worry more about what creative things you can do, what leverage angles you can find, what strategy but buttons you can push, because that is likely to be what's required in order to take down first place in a tournament on this particular slate. Uh, I will see you on one week season throughout the week. Thanks for hanging out. And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards in week nine.